So we're continuing our look at the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, last week, we started in on the uh, census uh, that God commanded Moses to take. <clears throat> and the purpose of that census was so that they could determine uh, how many men would be available to fight in the army. And so um, and some 600,000 is what they came up with. Now, what we're going to pick up with today is... Uh, kind of the conclusion of that and, and where we go, uh, where we go from there. And so, uh, what I want to do this morning is I'm going to read, uh, Numbers 1, uh, verse 47 down through chapter 2, verse 3. We're going to stop there for a minute, talk about that, and show you a, have a visual aid, uh, that we'll use to kind of, uh, unpack a little bit about what all that's talking about, and uh, then we'll we'll draw some some more conclusions from the text. But um, uh, for now, let me read to you Numbers chapter one verses uh, forty-seven through uh, chapter two, uh, uh, verse uh, two. This is the word of God. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Only the tribe of Levi shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So here's the thing to to note about this. So um, I know that some of you were not here last week. Some of you have never heard of the book of Numbers, and some of you uh, wish you'd never heard of the book of numbers. And so so here here we are today and we have this situation where we have this description of the camp. And uh you're thinking, I'm sure, like what does that have to do with anything in my life? What well, has everything to do with it? Um a couple of things to note uh as we uh, unpack this today. Um one is one of the things that you have to remember about these people who are described here um, as we've said over and over again, they're God's people and they matter. But remember, a year prior to what we read here, these people are slaves in Egypt. What do they know of the God of their fathers? Probably not very much. Uh, uh, and they are uh, uh, trying uh, to figure out what... <laughs> What, what this is going to look like. And they are failing. Remember, just a few months before this, what had, what had happened? They built a golden calf and called that their God who had delivered them from Egypt. And so, so as they're gathered out there, still at the foot of Mount Sinai, they've been there for a while. 
God wants them to do the census. And so they do the census and, and we, we read about all these numbers and all these men that are counted. And so what you would expect is that the purpose here and the thing that, that God is doing for them is preparing them to fight. It's preparing them to enter into battle, preparing them to fight off their enemies before as they go into the promised land. And so while that's certainly important, all of a sudden for the next several chapters here, we're not talking so much about an army, but we're talking much more about God and where he's going to live in the camp. Right. And so this is this is this is it's so important for us. And there's so much in this uh, for us to understand. And so what God does here is he describes for them what the Levites are going to do. He describes for them where the tabernacle is going to be and how the arrangement of the camp is going to be. So, Megan, put my what we'll get to that. Oh, that's my visual aid. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. Take that. Go to my notes. Um so after the census that determined how many men were available to serve in the army, we might expect more about this, but rather we have instructions for the Levites and the disposition of the tabernacle within a particular arrangement of the people of God at rest and on the march. Now, one of the things that's important to notice about this is at the end of this section and at the end of the next section, we have these words. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now, that's important. Because they don't do that very much. <laughs> All right. Uh, the fact is they don't do what God told them to do very often. They do what they want to do. Sound familiar? So so it's a remarkable thing when when God gives some instructions and we can say they did it. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Now, part of the thing that you have to see about this is why in the world would God go to so much trouble to talk about the tabernacle, the Levites, and the arrangement of the camp? Why is that such an important thing? Well, in, a, in, a, in uh, this month, the church goes camping. The church goes camping. Now, I've never been because I have to work on the weekends. But I've heard a lot about this camping trip. And typically what I hear is, wow, that guy, his marriage is a wreck. That family, they're doing a terrible job rearing their children. That family's dog, I want to kill it. So it's an opportunity for us to live together in the camp and judge one another, right? <laughs> Which is to build fellowship, right? To have an opportunity to, to do that. And, and who knows, you know, the, the, the Lord might bless the, uh, the camping trip with a hurricane and rain. <laughs> you don't think that's funny? I think that would be hilarious, right? So just imagine if that's living in the, on the church camping trip with you know, 150 of your best friends. Imagine living on a church camping trip for 40 years with 600,000 of your best friends. (laughs) How awesome is that going to be, right? (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things about tents is I've never been in a tent that was soundproof. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's just... When I think about this, I'm like, man, this is so crazy that they did this for all these years, right? So, so think, think, think a little bit about what, 
what is happening here and the necessity for God to give them some instructions and, and to continue teaching them and discipling his people really into their true identity, even as they're, as he talks about the arrangement of the camp when they're at rest and the arrangement of the camp when, uh, they're on the move. So, so Megan put my visual aid up there. So the next few verses in the text, this is what it's going to tell us basically. This is, this is kind of a, a representation by a tribe of the way the camp was supposed to be arranged. Now, uh, this is, this, I, I give you this so that uh, I, I don't want to take the time this morning to read through all of the text, the description of where each one of these tribes are, but you can see it and you can read it this afternoon to understand what's going on here. Where on the north you've got three tribes, on the east you've got three tribes, south three tribes, west three tribes, and then you have the tabernacle right in the middle. And right around the tabernacle, you have the Levites, right? Uh, the priestly group, right? That's, uh, <clears throat> that's, that's what's, uh, that's the arrangement of that. Now, you can get all caught up in, in looking at this thing, but there's one thing that you ought to see that's key to, about understanding what's going on here. What's in the middle? Okay. That's at the very center, right? Um, and you could say uh, all we could say all sorts of things like that. And, and, you know, if we were at one kind of church, I could spend the rest of the sermon challenging you to make God the center of your life. Right. However, the people didn't make God the center of their life. He is the center of their life. By and he is teaching them that. By planting his tent right in the middle. Now, one of the things that you have to see, go back to my notes, Megan. One of the things that you have to see about this is and why, uh, why this is important uh, and what God is doing here. You might miss it when you first read uh, these verses of 47 through uh, 54. But notice this. He says in verse 50, appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. And in fact, he uses that language, tabernacle of the testimony, three times. Now, you're probably thinking, tabernacle, tent of meeting, it's all the same. Yes, it is. But why would he call it tabernacle of testimony? Well, that's important for us because the tabernacle exists not just as a location or a place for us to kind of center our attention its existence here is not just a place for God to be, but God is using this to teach his people. And that's why he calls it a tabernacle of testimony, right? So a testimony is that which affirms the continuing relevance of something through repetition. Every single day, every Israelite gets up, walks out of their tent, and what do they see? They see the tabernacle. If there are sacrifices going on or things are burning there, they can smell it. There's the smoke that's going up from it. So, so that tells them that God is with them. But that's not all, right? The particular testimony in mind here is probably the Ten Commandments, which acted as a repeated testimony or witness to God's covenant with his people, right? And also the tent, the ark, and the veil are themselves all testimonies that speak of God and his desire to have a people to himself and his selection of them. So here's the point. The, the point of this is not, not just 
that they would see the tabernacle and they would know that the Ark of the Covenant's in there and they would know all the furniture's in there and they could see the Levites parked around it and so they could say, ah, God is with us. That's important and that's valuable. But more important and more valuable than that was what it was who this God was and what it is he had done and he was doing for them. That's why it's called the Ark of the Testament, the, the, tent, the Tabernacle of, of Testimony, because there's a ongoing testimony, a repetitive testimony every single day that God saves. Every single day God delivered us. Every single day God is for us. God has done this. Not only is he with us, not only is he among us, and not only is he ordering and, and, and uh, doing these things for us, but he saved us. This is our God. He loves us. He is for us, and he has acted in time and space to deliver us. Now, here's the thing. You need to be reminded of that. You need physical things in your environment. You need things that bear witness and testify to you of the very nature of this God. Because if you don't, because you and I live in the wilderness, we will forget. Or we won't, maybe we won't forget, but we'll devalue. That we'll lose the sense of the value and the wonder that not only is God with us and God is for us, but he is that God who has saved us, who has actually acted, done something in time and in space for us. That is so valuable because the fact is most of us spend most of our days Oblivious to that. And so what part of what's happening here is God provides an ongoing physical entity there in the middle of the camp that bears witness as a testimony to he is a God who saves. He is a God who delivers. He is a God who has made a covenant with his people and he will stick to it. So the tent in the middle of the camp speaks to not only the presence of God with his people, but also to their unique relationship with them. They're his people. He's their God. He has saved them. However, there's a big problem. Huge problem. Really big problem. Terrible problem. Dilemma. Right? The Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over all the tabernacle of the testimony. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now that's seeker friendly. (laughs) That is seeker sensitive. We want to make everybody as comfortable as we can shortly before we stick a sword in them because they violated the holiness of God. Right? This is a problem. This is a big problem. And we read that in 2017 and we think, oh, those ancients, you know, those, those terrible, those, those, those savages. Right? Well, the, the problem with that is there is a savage in, in the story, but it is not the people. You see, just as the test of the, the ark exists there to testify every day 
to the desire of God to be with his people, the, the reality that God has saved his people, he is also teaching them something so important and something that is life-giving. And that is that this God can only be approached in a certain way, right? You, and this is something that just sounds so terrible to us and, and, and seems like that is, that's so undemocratic or that that's, that's so, you know, uh, just, it just seems so inappropriate to us. But the fact is the, the, this, this concern that the holiness of God and an understanding of our, uh, uh, and the unapproachability of God without a sacrifice, without a mediator, without a way is actually the most life-giving and the most loving thing that this holy God can do for us. Now, now I hope that offends some of you and I hope that some of you think I don't agree with that because I need to convince you today, uh, and we all need to be convinced of the grace of God in the fact and in the means that he has given us to be able to approach him. Stick with me, right? One of the things that you have to see about this is, is that in all of this, God is demonstrating even in his requirement that the tabernacle not be approached and that his holiness be respected, he is still loving his people. Because remember this. Uh, in uh, Next slide, please, Megan. Um, this is not the first time God has threatened death for approaching too closely. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat. And God showed up to confront them in the garden. And uh, they threw one another under the bus. And then God cursed and by cursing blessed them as well. We have these words at the end of that section. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out. Isn't it funny how he just leaves that hanging? Left forever? I thought that was the point. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That is so unfair. That's just so offensive. Give, me, give us a second chance. Don't bar us from the tree of life. I thought that was the point, so that we would have access to the tree of life. But here's the thing. Something has to change. Because the life that we would get simply by going and approaching this God and taking the gift of life is not real life. If Adam goes back into the garden and now he eats from the tree of life, he will be confirmed forever in a world and in a body and in a life of sin and decay. And this is gross, I know. But I find one of the things most telling about our culture, uh, American culture, 
is our fixation on zombies. Right? Well, to go back <clears throat> to the tree of life without a sacrifice, without a redeeming uh, act on the part of God would be to confirm us in a zombie-like state forever. That would confirm us in a state of permanent decay and death until the whole thing just turned in on itself and went away. Now, what's powerful about that for me and what's profound to me about that is, is that when God says, listen, you know, you have to come to grips with the fact that your sin has separated you from me. My character and your character must come together here in a way. How is that going to work? Because if we simply think we can have this relationship with God and that we can live forever without anything, without anything being done to handle, to deal with, to do away with our sin, we simply will live our lives separated from the one who loves us and who made us without any hope of redemption. And so what happens here is, and what's going on here by, by setting up that tabernacle in the middle and by guarding it and by communicating to the people that there must be a sacrifice, there must be a mediator, God is instructing his people in, in not only his holiness, but also in his grace and mercy and providing for them a way to have life. Next slide, please, Megan. God can only be approached in a way that takes into account his character and our character. In order for our life to have meaning, it needs to be centered on the Lord, our creator and our God. And at the same time, though, his holy presence means certain death to sinners like us. In other words, it's better to have him in the camp with us, except when it isn't. <laughs> okay, right? Do you get that? I mean, you want him in there, but then... Maybe you don't, you know, you want him in the boat to shut the storm up, but then you're in the boat with a guy who can shut the storm up. You know, let's 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 be clear about uh, the way this works. Right. But the goodness of God is manifest to us. Uh, in the beginning of the New Testament, when the writer to, uh, 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 when John writes his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he says these remarkable words of Jesus, that the word became flesh, literally pitched his tent among us. Literally, that's what that means. He tabernacled amongst us. So this whole thing that God is doing here in the wilderness, this whole thing in the discipling and the training that he is doing for his people is the thing that points to us this morning of the thing that he has done in Jesus Christ. But in this case, the, the tabernacle is a tabernacle of flesh. And in this case, it is a tabernacle that is made vulnerable to his people. And in this case, it is a tabernacle that is also the sacrifice, right? So, so when, when Jesus comes into the world and he lives among us and he walks among us, he takes upon himself all of that, that all of the, the things that would separate us from God, all of the things that would keep us away from him. But he now makes the way 
And so when we say that the way is wide open, it is wide open, but it is only wide open through Jesus. Praise God that it's only open through Jesus, because if the way was open to him in any other way, it would only lead to death. Now, that's the thing that is there there should be a sense, a little bit of an offense at that, because what we would rather be able to say and do is say, I can go out and grab hold of God anytime I want to. But in fact, the love of God says to us, yes, yes, I will live among my people. I will walk among them. I will be among them. I will touch them and they can touch me, but only by means of a mediator and only by means of this one pitching his tent among us and becoming the sacrifice for us, right? Next slide. So, so God desired to be with his people then, now, and forever. And to be able to do that, he had to make it safe for us. And by making it safe for us, it had to be unsafe for him. And that's at the heart of what he's doing here. He had to do something with our sin. So now the way is opened and all barriers are removed in Christ. Right? So, so the, the question for us today and the, and the issue for us today is this. Have you, do you, try to approach God in any way, means, shape, or form other than the way, means, shape, or form that he has given us? Now, here's the thing. Because God has pitched his tent among us, because he has died, because he has made a sacrifice, because he has opened the way for us, um, that way is the way, the pathway to life. Any other pathway that we seek to reach him leads in death. But here's the great news. It's a sure way. It's a loving way. It's a faithful way. It's a constant and consistent way. The door doesn't ever, ever close in Christ. So what, what, what you have to see about this is, is that the provision that God makes for us in Jesus Christ is, is not just to have access, but to have access that changes our lives forever. Now, because Jesus is my way to the tree of life, he is the tree of life for me, I can know that I can eat that fruit and live forever in righteousness, in redemption, and in wholeness and healing. Um, The other thing to keep in mind about this is, and this is one of the things that I think is probably challenging for us, and that is this. The people of God in the Old Testament there and at the foot of Mount Sinai had the tent right there in the middle where they could see it, they could smell it, they could hear what was going on in there and that sort of thing, but they couldn't touch it. God gives us physical things now that we can see and smell and touch that remind us of his redemption of us, but we can touch it. And he can touch us without fear, without concern. If Jesus is the way, fear is banished.